as we get into our lesson for today, as you know, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of First Kings. This, of course, is a continuation of the story of Israel's monarchy that began in 1 Samuel with the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the Divided Kingdom beginning with Jeroboam in the Northern Kingdom as well as Rehoboam in the Southern Kingdom. And our concentration for today is going to be on the six Northern Kings that followed Jeroboam. Yes, six kings we're going to cover today. Um, although we will see that a couple of them really couldn't claim to be fully king, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So the last couple of weeks, we've had the privilege of studying one of the southern kings, Asa, uh, who is a little bit like a breath of fresh air with all the mess that we saw happening in, in both the northern and southern kingdoms. Asa, of course, was a reformer king, eradicated a lot of the false worship that had crept its way or leapt its way into the southern kingdom and of course so Asa did a great job although as we saw last week he wasn't perfect um, he did do some things that and and really at the end of the day he didn't end well um, which is I, I think a very big lesson for all of us well unfortunately that nice fresh air that we got to enjoy for a couple of weeks is going to turn back sour as we turn our attention back to what went on in the northern kingdom following Jeroboam's death so I'm not going to spend a lot of time today going through an introduction because I want to emphasize a bit more some conclusions at the end after we've had a chance to digest the story and think through it some. But one thing that I want to mention, and it's interesting, Justin actually mentioned some of this in his uh, message this morning, but as we're approaching the Old Testament, it's actually helpful to think, even as Justin was talking about, that there's a number of different perspectives that we can see. These books are not just collections of short stories. It's not anthologies that you may have read in, in school growing up about different things. It's also not, they're also not purely cold historical textbooks. God has sovereignly ordained these books to be included in our scriptures, and he has a number of purposes for that. So as we approach these old, the Old Testament, it's helpful to think through these different perspectives. And of course, on the one hand, right at the beginning, you have the historical account. So this includes the actual facts of the story, as well as how it fits into the larger historical context. But there's also some other considerations, such as how does this story contribute to the flow of redemptive history that we see uh, throughout the scriptures? Uh, another way to ask that question is how does this passage point us to Christ? Like Ephesians 1.10 states, uh, the whole purpose of God's redemptive plan is the summing up of all things in Christ. Another perspective would be simply personal application. As we go through these things, we have the opportunity to learn from the examples that we see. And there's going to be some positive examples, and then there's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of negative examples of things that we need to avoid. Along with that, there's also going to be some theological truths. God is putting himself on display 
through the Old Testament. So what is God doing that we can see? What can we come to understand about the nature and character of God as we see these passages unfold? So what I'm planning to do today is I want to work our way pre primarily through the historical account, and then I want to come back at the end and consider some of these other aspects. So with that, let's jump into the narrative. And we're going to be starting today in 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 25. And we'll begin here with Jeroboam's son Nadab, who ascended to the throne following Jeroboam's death. But before I get there, something that's kind of helpful for me to see as I look through this, and I'm going to zoom in just a little bit here. Hopefully you can see that. Uh, but... This is a, a parallel view of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, just to get an idea. And as we go through the book of Kings, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between these two kingdoms as it relays the stories of these kings. So for today, we're going to be starting way over here with Nadab, and then we're going to be covering Basha, Elaz, Zimri, Tibni, and then finally Omri. Um, so you can get a picture of how that flows from a historical perspective. Oops, I messed up, sorry. It's easy to hit the wrong thing here. All right, so getting into the story, the first thing that we're going to see is a summary of Nadab's reign. So we see that in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 15. And it says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father in, which, in his sin in which he made Israel sin. Now we're not told a whole lot here in this particular section. Uh, Nadab was likely Jeroboam's second son, as Jeroboam's first son was probably the one who died that Ahijah prophesied, if you remember that story from a couple of weeks ago. And that story is captured in 1 Kings 14. But really, the summation of it is that as a result of Jeroboam's sin, God punished Jeroboam by taking his son, Ahijah, I'm sorry, Abijah. Um, and as we talked about, uh, there was a degree of compassion that we see uh, in the Lord doing this because it turns out that that son... Um, God was compassionate towards him in a special way, and that was the only son of Jeroboam's that was granted a proper and noble burial. So in these, getting back to this passage, in these first two verses, we're really only told two things. Um, number one, that his reign was pretty short, only two years. And then during his reign, he continued the evil false religious system that was started by Jeroboam. So like father, like son, I know our, our teacher Terry noted a couple of weeks ago that the worship system that Jeroboam had established continued throughout all of the northern kingdom uh, until the kingdom was actually overthrown. So the stuff, the mess that Jeroboam started continued on, and we see that happening obviously here with Nadab. Now we're going to learn what happens to Nadab here in this next section, which I'm calling Basha's betrayal and power grab. 
So beginning in verse 27, we read, Then Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the sins which Jeroboam, sins of Jeroboam which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So what we see here is, number one, that there was this conspiracy that ultimately ended in an assassination. Uh, we see here from the text that Basha was from the tribe of Issachar. We aren't told how or why this conspiracy got started, but evidently Basha envisioned a plan to depose Nadab. Now, the word here, conspire, indicates that Basha was not acting alone, although he clearly seemed to be the ringleader. Basha seems to have been part of the army because he was engaged along with Nadab in laying siege to the city of Gibbethon. So likely, Basha was a trusted leader. He was somebody that could obviously get close enough to Nadab to carry out his plan. Uh, but he was probably even one of the generals in the army. Now, Gibbethon itself, which is the place where this, took, where, where this occurred, Gibbethon was a city on the Mediterranean coastal plain, likely on the border between the northern and southern kingdoms. Now, as we see here in the text, it had apparently been conquered and controlled by a group of Philistines that were still dwelling in the land. So Israel wanted to gain back control of that city, probably for some critical strategic defense purposes. Like, like I was mentioning, is right probably around the border of that northern and southern kingdom. So they saw that as an important city to control. Now, they were apparently not successful in that endeavor because we're going to find Basha's son, Elah, had also laid siege to the same city after Basha's death. But the key thing is here that at some point during that siege, Basha was able to get close to Nadab and kill him. And then Basha was installed as the new king. And of course, his first order of business was the absolute and total destruction of Jeroboam's family. And so we see that Basha rose up and murdered all of Jeroboam's household. It says that there was no person left alive. Now, this seems to include not just the male heirs, but likely the daughters, potentially wives that were associated, um, and uncles and so on, relatives. Uh, basically, the, the whole goal, this was something that was commonly done when a new dynasty came into power, would be to kill off every possible heir that could have any claim to the throne. So that's what we see Basha doing. But understand, this is actually a deplorable and sinful act. 
and God's going to hold him accountable for that. In most cases, even, it was often just the male heirs that would be killed, um, but it doesn't seem like that's what Basha did. So he went even over and beyond what would typically happen. But the second thing that we see here is that he was acting based on his own sinful choices and motivations, uh, but nevertheless, his actions were in perfect lockstep with God's sovereign plan. Basha did exactly what God said was going to happen to Jeroboam. Although, in so doing, Basha was committing sin, and he will be held accountable for it. So, next we look at a summary of Basha's reign, beginning in verse 32. It says, There was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha the son of Ahijah became king over all Israel at Tirzah and reigned 24 years. He did, of course, evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. So there's three key points that we see here. Number one, that uh, Basha experienced a state of constant war, that he reigned for 24 years, and that he did evil following in the sins of Jeroboam. Now there's the story you may remember from last week that was recorded in 2 Chronicles 16. And the focus of that story, of course, was on Asa, but Bashaf was figuring into the story because he went and began building a couple of key cities on the border between the southern and northern kingdoms. And if you remember that story, Asa acted foolishly and sought help from Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, rather than seeking the Lord. However, his strategy apparently worked, and uh, Basha had to pull all of his army back to defend against Ben-Hadad's raids. But the summary of Basha's reign is pretty short here. However, that's not all there is. So the next section, we're going to see God's pronouncement against Basha. So that's in chapter 16, verse 1. says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Any one of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. So the point here is that Basha, uh, that God would not let Basha continue in his sin unchecked. So God makes several points here in this pronouncement. So the first one is that God is the one who established Basha as a ruler over Israel. And that is so important to understand. The people who come into a leadership role in any human government are not there by mistake. This includes sinful people who reject and rebel against God's authority. And of course, this point is made several times in Scripture. I don't have time this morning to take you to all of them. But one example is in Romans 13.1, where it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. It's a very clear statement. 
And we have see that God, of course, affirming that reality here with Basha. And the inference here is that Basha either knew this already, or at the very least, he should have known it. Uh, but understanding that God had appointed him as a leader over God's people should have caused Basha to recognize God's true authority and sought his forgiveness and restoration for the people of Israel. But of course, that is not the route that Basha took. So despite the reality that God rose, that God brought Basha to power, instead of serving the Lord, Basha took the opportunity to continue to lead the people into sin following after the pattern of Jeroboam. So as a result, God would treat Basha in the same way he treated Jeroboam. And when this judgment would be executed, uh, Basha's children would not even be given proper burials. That's the point where it says if they die in the field, the birds eat them and so on. So you would think that Basha would have learned from Jeroboam's fate, given the fact that he was the one that actually carried out Jeroboam's fate. As is so often the case, people can watch others participate in sinful activities and the consequences that befall them as a result of those actions and then engage in the same actions themselves. It's like they would, like they would have some sort of special dispensation that uniquely exempts them from the disaster. We see that pattern here. This is what this person did. This was their consequences, but surely I'm not going to experience that in the same way. To think that you are somehow above the law and that those things don't apply to your situation is the height of arrogance. Of course, I'm often amazed how in our own culture the aftermath from engaging in certain sins is severe, and yet the mainstream response to those sins is either to deny the consequences or seek to reduce or eliminate the consequences rather than accepting that God has established certain repercussions for behaviors that deviate from his revealed will. So the appropriate response when you see somebody undergoing the judgment of God and the consequences of their sins is to look internally and seek to avoid those things. That, of course, is not what our culture does, and that is not what sinners do, and that is not what Basha did in this situation. So the next that we see is this summary of Basha's life, death, and God's judgment against him. So verse 5 says, Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried in, buried in Tirzah, and Elah his son became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu the son of Hanani also came against Basha and his household, both because of the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. So this verse recounts a little bit what, Jehu had come and told Basha, uh, and then it records as well the death and burial of Basha and the fact that his son Elah 
began to reign in his place. So verse 7, the writer outlined God's judgment against Basha that we read, that we saw in the previous section, but then he actually adds an interesting detail. So here he gave two reasons for God's judgment. The first is what we already know, that because Basha continued to engage in the sins of Jeroboam, he was ultimately judged. But the second reason is recorded there at the end of verse 7, which says, because he struck it. Well, struck what? What did he strike? And the language is actually a little bit cumbersome here. Um, But it means, and it's talking about, that he struck the house of Jeroboam. So now this is the interesting part. Because God had ordained that Jeroboam's house would be destroyed, and yet he still held Basha accountable for the sin that he engaged in in murdering Jeroboam's family. Now we're going to talk about that in a little bit more in a bit, so we're going to leave it there for now. So next thing that we see here is a brief summary of Elah's reign in verse 8. It says there, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned two years. Not a whole lot here. We learn that Elah, Basha's son, of course, became king in his place, and then obviously reigned two years. Moving on, um, then we get to Zimri's conspiracy, or Zimri's betrayal and assassination. So verse 9 His servant, meaning Elah's servant, Zimri, the commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tirzah. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. And it came about when he became king, as soon as he sat on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha. He did not leave a single male, nor any of his relatives, nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they had sinned, and which they had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Starting to feel like history is repeating itself. So here we go again. We're going to see yet another conspiracy and an assassination. So this is Zimri this time. Um, We learn in the next section that the armies of Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. That sounds familiar, right? Um, And one of Elah's generals, Zimri, conspired against him. Again, that word conspires indicates that Zimri was likely not acting alone. There were others that were somehow participating in this plot, although as we'll see, this plot is not going to be well received. Now, Here's the situation. Israel was encamped against Gibbethon at Elah, or against Gibbethon, and Elah was back at home having a grand old time. The phrase here, drinking himself drunk, indicates that Elah was flagrantly drinking for the express purpose of getting drunk, which was a practice that God forbade in the law. And so we aren't told why Zimri did this, 
maybe he was angry that uh, he and the generals were engaged at Gibbethon and, and Elah was at home enjoying himself. There's other stories of kings when their armies were going out to war, namely David, that was sitting at home enjoying himself. So obviously I think that's an illustration that Elah was not a good leader, not the least of which we find him drinking to the point of, and for the purpose of, drunkenness. And so Zimri came in and killed him. Now, the first thing he does, of course, is to, as soon as he gets on the throne, is to destroy all of Basha's family. So again, he follows this scorched earth policy to kill every potential heir of Basha and Ella, and this extended both to the relatives, extended relatives, as well as even friends. Anybody that had any sense of uh, support for Ella was gone. The writer here points out that Zimri's actions fulfilled what God had stated to Basha, but it also points out that Ella himself had continued in the sins that his father did following the example of Jeroboam. So Elad, despite his short reign, also incurred God's judgment for his part. He had the opportunity to look at and see what was going on and to begin to make reforms, and he absolutely chose not to do that. So the next thing that we see is a little bit interesting because unlike Basha, who was installed as king and accepted as king, Zimri was not. So his reign, we're going to see, is rejected. So verse 15 says, In the 27th year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Tirzah. Now the people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people who were camped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and has also struck down the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel went with him went up from Gibbethon and besieged Tirzah. So here we've got a civil war situation going on. Verse 18, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire, and he died. Because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and the sin in which he did, making Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy, which he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So we're told here, um, first off, Zimri begins to reign and the word gets out. Now the reign we're also told here was a sum total of seven days. Wow. So as soon as Zimri's deeds were discovered, the army immediately said, no way, and installed Omri as king instead of Zimri. This is totally different from Basha's situation, like I mentioned. Um, Basha was able to assume the throne and keep it, but Zimri was immediately rejected. Somehow, I don't think he thought his plan through very well. Maybe there were some other people involved in his little conspiracy, but it was a little conspiracy, and he didn't have the right people involved, evidently. So what we see here is that Omri mobilizes the army against Zimri, and when Zimri d 
figures out that the city's overthrown, the city's taken, it's done, uh, and he realized he was doomed, he decided to take his own life, but then just to spite, he decided to burn the king's house down as well while he was in it. Doesn't sound like a very good way to go. Um, there's also a note here that God ordained this very early demise precisely because during his laughably short reign, he continued in Jeroboam's sins. Here again, Zimri had the opportunity, however short, to do the right thing, and he didn't. The two dynasties had already been removed as a result of these sins, but just like the others before him, he didn't recognize the lessons either, and so the Lord chose not to intervene to preserve his life. It's like, will these people ever learn? Of course, we could also ask, will we ever learn? So next we see, as a result, that there is a power struggle. By the way, before I get to that, one other thing that I want to mention is that uh, it's, it seems likely that Zimri, what Zimri did here was actually despised by all of Israel. Uh, we actually hear the name Zimri coming up, of, of all things, out of the mouth of Jezebel much later in the story, as God had raised up a man by the name of Jehu to come in and destroy all of Ahab's house. And of course, we're going to spend quite a bit of time covering Ahab and the horrors that he brought on to the northern kingdom. Um, but so God raised up Jehu to come in and completely destroy Ahab and all of his household. And when Jehu comes to Jezebel, Jezebel actually in a pejorative way calls him Zimri. So it seems like Zimri almost became what we would think of as like Benedict Arnold. He was the guy that betrayed the king and did what he did. And of course, we see that that was absolutely rejected by the army. Next, there's a power struggle that goes on. So chapter 16, verse 21 says, Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, and Tibni died, and Omri became king. So this is pretty clear. While Omri had been hastily installed as king, others had different ideas and wanted Tibni to reign instead. Some commentators suggest, and, and it makes sense, that Omri was the army's choice of the king, and maybe Tibni was the choice of other, the rest of Israel, were not necessarily connected to the army. That could be, but we're just not told. So either way, there was conflict in the country about who the true president was. I mean king, sorry. Um, next we get into Omri's reign, uh, which is in verse 23, where we read, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Tirzah, and he bought the hill Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemar, the owner of the hill. And Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in which his, in which, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, in which he did, and his might which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son became king in his place. So we're told here that Omri reigned for 12 years, and he first reigned in the what was at that point the capital city of Tirzah. But then Omri did something that was a pretty significant accomplishment, uh, which was to purchase the hill on the hill that the city of Samaria would be built on and then began construction on that city. Now, this would actually become the capital city of the northern kingdom for the next 150 years. Now, this was actually a pretty smart move on Omri's part. The city is built on a pretty significant hill, and that's important because it's great from a defensibility perspective. Anybody who is going to try to conquer uh, Samaria was going to have some trouble. And as you know, the larger region uh, later on even began to be known as Samaria. So that got started with Omri. But we're also told here about the character of Omri's reign. And as we should expect, Omri continued in the sins of Jeroboam. However, the writer here also states that Omri was worse than the kings who went before him. Now, it doesn't explicitly state it here, but we know that his son Ahab would be the worst yet installing and instituting Baal worship as well as participating in many other detestable idolatrous practices. So it is highly likely that Omri here began to lead the people into other forms of idolatry. And as we know, these other forms of idolatry seem to always have some sort of fascination with sexual deviations and so on. And explicit types of sexual sin and perversions. So, and then the last thing that we see here, uh, which is really a sad thing, is that he had a son, and his son was named Ahab. As we'll see and learn, Ahab is going to bring Israel to the point of horrible sin and even influence the southern kingdom, even bringing them things to the point where the line of David was almost cut off except for one child named Joash. So Omri's legacy is Ahab the disaster. And so we'll begin to look at the reign of Ahab next week. Um, what's interesting about the reign of Ahab is we see coming on the scene two very important prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and they begin to address in a very significant way the sins of Ahab and that northern kingdom. So that's for next week and the next following weeks. But as we think through all of this, uh, I'm going to start here just putting up a chart, and you won't be able to necessarily get all of this, but this is the first seven kings, just a summary. And what you see on the summary of their reign is 
rejected God's instructions, idolatry, 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 assassinations, murder, idolatry, drunkenness, idolatry. Uh, Tibni, we don't know much about him, but in Omri, idolatry and worsening idolatry, and then a lovely son named Ahab. That just sounds great, right? What a disaster. So in thinking through all of this, what do we see? First off, there's some theological truths that we need to consider. The reality is that some sinners enjoy a long and prosperous life. We see that. Others encounter judgment very quickly, as in the case of Zimri, for example. Jeroboam reigned for 22 years. Zimri reigned for seven days. The reality is that every hour of a sinner's life is an expression of the kindness and compassion of God. We should see that when we see these passages. Another thing is that it is God who sovereignly ordains all governmental leaders, even when those leaders use sinful means to acquire power. Boy, how often do we see sin and lies and corruption even in our own government uh, for those people that come to power? Well, none of that is outside of God's sovereign control. Uh, we have the people that we have in leadership today because of God's sovereign purposes. He is doing something. We don't know what it is, maybe, but he is putting himself on display, and he has a plan, and he will bring glory to himself in the most extraordinary of ways. So it's important to understand. The other thing that I will say is even the sinful actions by governmental leaders are not outside the sovereign control of God and are in fact used by God to accomplish his purposes. We see that in the story here. At the same time, God is never the cause of sin. And further, he will hold them accountable, which is the last point here. Even though God may allow sinful actions as part of his sovereign plans, he holds sinners accountable for their sinful choices and actions. We see that in the case of Basha. Obviously, God ordained that Basha would come in and destroy the house of Jeroboam, but part of Basha's judgment was because of how he, what he did to Jeroboam's house. Now, I think we can see a little bit of a contrast between Basha and uh, Zimri and the others as we get into things further, between them and David. So God had established David as the next king. But what did David refuse to do? He never lifted a hand against God's anointed person, Saul. Even though we might be able to argue, maybe he was justified to do so. But that was never the course that the man after God's own heart chose. It's a big contrast. There's some personal application that we can see. Number one, looking at Omri, and not just Omri, but all of them, but Omri became the father of Ahab, who's the worst king that Israel has seen. And then the point here is for us that we fathers need to realize that our children will follow in our footsteps. The examples we set, either good or bad, will likely be followed. 
So this is a good reminder to us as fathers to lead our families in accordance with what God has outlined in Scripture. You need to be actively engaged in teaching the truths of God to your children, both in word and example. Another personal application. We talked about this a little bit, but when we sin, we are not the only ones who experience the consequences for sin. It was Jeroboam that sinned, and of course, his son was complicit in all that he did, but who experienced all the consequences? It was Jeroboam's family, his children. So again, this is an encouragement to us to strive to please the Lord in all our endeavors. And another personal application, we need to learn from the examples of those that have gone before us. We need to learn from their mistakes as well. Don't think that you will be afforded some kind of an exception if you chose, choose to go down paths that are wrong. Lastly here, and this is where I want to end, the question is, how does this passage point us to Christ? In the song Tom wrote entitled, God Has Magnified His Word, there's a verse that says, from every verse on every page, there is a path that leads to heaven's Lord and Calvary's Lamb, to him who died for me. So that statement there in the song highlights that great reality that the Bible is ultimately pointing to our glorious and exalted Lord. So how does a passage like this point us to Christ? And of course, there are a few ways, um, and I'm only going to focus on one of those. And I think one of the main points really throughout all of history, but I think we see it here in a unique way, is that God is demonstrating the complete and utter inadequacy of sinful human leaders to successfully lead his people in righteousness. What we see here in these kings of Israel is a microcosm of what is true of every government that rejects the Lord and rejects his word. Every society, every nation, every people group apart from the Lord, have gone this direction. Now, we can look through history and we can see a few bright spots, but they never last. They're always short-lived. And if there was ever a nation that had the best chance, the best opportunity to bring an appropriately righteous human government upon this earth, it was the nation of Israel. And yet, what is the sad testimony over and over and over again is they can't do it. They never did it. They were entrusted with the law of God, the written speech of the Holy One, and God through the law provided all the instructions that they needed to live holy before him, including processes to address failures and uh, repent over sin and so on. And and the promises that would have come if they would simply turn to him in repentance. He would eagerly return to them and bless them. The best possible shot at a holy and righteous nation failed miserably over and over again. So for today, I want to look briefly at a comparison of the legacy of these first northern kings Again, as a microcosm of what truly every nation and people group do that reject the Lord. And then we're going to compare that as we look forward to a kingdom that's coming. One that we will celebrate 
when we will have a perfect wise king. So let's look at a few of these things that we see with these northern kings. Number one, there's a rejection of God and his word. That's where it starts. It's where it always starts. Then, idolatry that expands and worsens. And by the way, idolatry takes on so, so many different forms. And atheism, as an example, is just another form of idolatry. It is putting something else in the place of God. It's idolatry. Next, we see prominent and worsening sexual sin and moral, moral decay. Sorry, There's betrayal and conspiracies. There's murder assassinations, family genocides, larger genocides, rejection of the sanctity of human life, leaders given to drunkenness, political power struggles, pride and arrogance. Can't we see that in these stories? A lack of peace. And that's just a few. From this section only, we could actually add other things like corruption and other forms of abuses of power and, and so on as we look through all of those things. But that is what is the legacy of these kings, and it's actually the legacy of every sinful government. Oh, yeah, and then none of them ever last. They always fail. They always go into oblivion. But there's a different kingdom that's coming. So... I actually spent quite a bit of time as I was studying, going through all of this. Um, I captured a lot of verses that just talked about the nature of the millennial kingdom and how it differs from what we see here on earth. Um, and it was incredibly encouraging. I had, I think, three and a half pages worth of verses printed out, um, and I couldn't even use them all, and that was only a fraction. So we have some great things to look forward to. But in considering some things um, in, in going through that, here's some things that bubbled up to me is that, number one, Jesus will reign over the whole earth as the only sovereign king. doesn't mean that there's not going to be other rulers that are installed to help him, but he is the ultimate king. There's no more power struggles. Secondly, his reign will be characterized by righteousness and justice and get this one truth how far have we fallen in our country he will inspire the nations to pursue holiness and to praise the lord what country on earth does that now doesn't exist i think america had a great shot but here's where we are there will be a in this millennial kingdom, a worldwide desire to know the Lord and learn from him. These passages are incredibly encouraging that there's people all over the globe that just want to come to Jerusalem to hear from the Lord. Wow. There will be complete peace. No more war. None of it. It's gone. It's done. Swords will be built, uh, beat into plowshares and so on. There will be a brotherhood between those who were once Israel's enemies so that they will worship together with Israel and get this, be considered as God's people. It's amazing. Um, one of my favorite passages is there. I don't have time to get into it today, but I encourage you to go read it. It's in that first one that's listed is I Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. 
where God actually calls the Egyptians and the Assyrians his people and basically equates them with his people of Israel. It's fascinating, especially given the things that are going on in our world today. What we see in our world is not the end. Uh, those that are Palestinians and, and others are going to come to the Lord and be his people. What a great day that'll be. There will be some profound changes in nature. Some of these things are diseases, especially childhood diseases, will be eliminated or greatly suppressed, and life will be extended beyond 100 years. There will be healing for those who are blind, deaf, and lame, and others. The Dead Sea will become fresh water and teem with fish. Carnivorous animals will become vegans and eat grass, and then dangerous animals like snakes and so on, and lions will no longer harm humans. The deserts in Israel will bloom and become green. There will be abundant agricultural prosperity. And then, not a hundred years, not two years, not seven days, a thousand years, our Lord is going to prove that he is the only one that can be a righteous and godly ruler. And I want to end with this. If, if you were to ask me to pick a favorite verse, sorry, pick a favorite verse in all of the scripture, I think it would be this one. Although it's tough to pick. Um, but it's this. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. What a great day that will be. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are lifted. Even when we see a story like this that's dark and disturbing, because we know that you have a plan. You have a sovereign plan, and, and that sovereign plan is to install your king on Zion. And he will rule the people with equity. He will be the prince of peace. He will rule in righteousness and justice, and his house will be called the house of truth. Lord, we long for that day. May it come quickly. And in the meantime, we pray that you would continue to guide us, continue to teach us, and continue to cause us to long for that ultimate day. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.